You're listening to TIP. For me, if I'm going to close on a deal, the deal has to be so good that the closing costs, you know, that 6000 to 15000 whatever it is, the closing costs, it has to be enough on the profit end where that's not going to really cut into it for me to say, hey, it's actually worth me to close on this. In this week's episode, I talk with Ryan Corcoran about what wholetailing is, investing in small to mid-sized multifamily properties, specifically in the Northeast, how to find off-market deals, how to creatively finance your deals, why it's important to get in the same room as people doing things bigger than you, and much, much more. Ryan Corcoran is a 27-year-old full-time real estate investor who founded his real estate investment company, SPG. Ryan earned a bachelor's degree in exercise physiology and a master's degree as a physician assistant before leaving the corporate world to become a real estate investor. Ryan now owns over 157 units today, with another 60 under contract as of this recording. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to share that my book, The Everything Guide to House Hacking, is officially on presale from Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, Target, Walmart, and many more. I actually just got my first physical copy in hand yesterday from the publishers. It was a really cool feeling. You can pretty much get the book anywhere you can buy books and you can pre-order it there. TIP has been gracious enough to purchase 50 copies of the book to give away to listeners of the show. In order to get the book for free, go to everythinghousehacking.com and pre-order the book. Then just send a copy of your receipt to contact at everythinghousehacking.com and then also include how you'd like to be reimbursed, whether Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal. The first 50 people to send in their receipts will get reimbursed so the book is free for them. I'll be sure to put the website and the email address that I just mentioned in the show notes below so you don't have to write it down while you're driving or working out or in case you just forget. I really hope you guys all enjoy the book. Now, without further delay, let's get right into this week's episode with Ryan Corcoran. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Ryan Corcoran. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. The very first thing I want to talk about today is wholetailing. You mentioned in your initial outreach email to me that you've flipped, wholesaled, and hotailed 10 properties this year. What exactly is wholetailing and how does it differ from wholesaling? Wholetailing is essentially a merge between a wholesale and a flip. Typically, how this works is you find an undervalued property that probably doesn't need a ton of work, right? Maybe it needs a, a little display work or some visual appealing work, maybe the, the yard's overgrown. So essentially, you're going to close on the property as you would if you were going to flip a property. But then you're basically immediately going to turn around and sell that property to a buyer you either already have lined up or you're going to post it on the MLS, whatever you're going to do. But essentially what we did or we've done is we will purchase like let's say a six unit property. We'll go in and we'll, we'll buy that property. We'll make sure the landscaping looks good. Maybe we'll increase the rents just a little bit. But within like that first month where we already have it back on the MLS, ready to go. So it's not a full-blown flip where you're you know infusing capital to really boost value. But it's not necessarily a wholesale where you're double closing it or you're assigning the contract. 
the way I look at it is essentially it's a really, really fast flip. You're buying properties that are essentially undervalued that are already worth more without really doing much. And it's a good way to boost income pretty quickly, actually. I've done five of those and about another five or six like double closes this year so far. So between those, yeah, that, that's sort of what we call wholetailing. Where does that name wholetailing come from? To be honest, I don't really know. When I moved down here to Rhode Island, I, you know, there's a, his name is CJ Moss. He's, he's probably the biggest wholesaler out here in Rhode Island. So if you're looking for another podcast guest, he'd probably be a good one on wholesaling. But um, I think he wholesaled like 100 plus properties last year. But when I met with him when I first moved here and he was like, dude, like you're finding all these really good deals. He's like, it's, if you don't want to be like a full-blown wholesaler and you're closing on all of them, why don't you start to just slowly build like your buyer pipeline up and then just start wholesaling them. So essentially just kicking them right back onto the MLS or selling them to people after you spruce them up. Just very, very minor. And so that, that's what I started to do. And I would say it's really hard to build a business around wholesaling itself because there are not as many properties that you can just wholesale. But yeah, it's worked out pretty well. If you're doing that and you're actually closing on the property, aren't you worried about closing costs now twice? You have closing costs when you purchase and you have closing costs when you sell versus when you wholesale, you're not actually going through the closing yourself. So you're just kind of assigning that contract before closing. Somebody else kind of has to deal with those closing costs. How does that play into the strategy? For me, if I'm going to close on a deal, the deal has to be so good that the closing costs, you know, that 6000 to 15000 whatever it is, the closing costs, it has to be enough on the profit end where that's not going to really cut into it for me to say, hey, it's actually worth me to close on this. I'll just give you a quick example. We, we bought a six-unit property for four hundred and twenty-five grand. We turned around and sold it for seven hundred grand, And so... That, you know, you see a two hundred and whatever $75,000 swing there. That is a property where I would say, okay, I'm going to close on that, spruce it up a little bit and make it look like a, you know, make it a $700,000 property really quickly instead of just assigning it for maybe, let's say, five hundred or, or five fifty. dollars right? I'm able to get it that much higher because I'm putting in just very, very minor work to make it look much better. Maybe it's painting a little bit on the outside. Maybe it's cleaning up the landscape. Very, very minor stuff. And again, just kicking that back on like within that month to, to turn up a profit. And so, yeah, from closing cost perspective, you know that one costs us about ten thousand in closing fees, and then another four percent for the agent fee. But at the end of the day, on a two hundred seventy-five thousand dollars swing, it's not that big of a deal. We're only in July, which means that you're averaging just over one flip wholesale or hotel per month, right? You've done ten, and we're seven months into the year. Talk to us a bit about your deal flow and how you're finding these deals that are such great deals. And also give us some perspective on the markets that you're doing this in. I'll start with the end question first. So I'm located in the Northeast. I buy anywhere from New Hampshire, North, Laconia, New Hampshire area, like Lakes region down to anywhere in Rhode Island. And, so, uh, and that includes Massachusetts in between there, right? With that being my area, I have focused... Really, my entire business is around finding off-market leads. And so I do that between direct mail, between networking and cold calling, between the three of those, and really building this massive funnel, which has driven a ton of deals or a ton of leads my way. And then from there, I'm able to analyze them. And so basically what I do is I I take all these off-market leads and I will put them into categories like, okay, this one is really, really good for a buy and hold long-term play. Or this one is, you know, the deal is good, but it's not that great. Maybe I'll try to assign that or I'll try to wholesale that one. Or maybe it's this one needs a ton of work. That would be a good flip opportunity. And so I try to almost like, I guess the metaphor is, you know, you stick a net in the water and you're trying to pick up as many fish as possible, right? And then you have these fish in the basket or the net, and you're just trying to figure out what to do with these deals. 
And so, because not everyone is going to be a good buy and hold. Not everyone's going to be a good flip and not everyone you're going to be able to wholesale, right? And so, and a lot of them fall out of the net. You can't actually do anything with them and they, they get entered in a CRM and you play follow up with them over the next couple of months, years, whatever it is. But that's really how my model started. And I've taken it to a scalable level where there's 10,000 letters going out every month. I've got several thousand cold calls going out every month. I'm connecting with a certain amount of agents every week. And I'm just building this massive funnel where I can continue to do that at a higher level. Are you doing the cold calling yourself or have you hired that out to somebody else? And if you have hired it out, who have you hired it out to you? What services or platform are you using for that? I started doing direct mail all by myself and I hired that. For cold calling, I don't mind talking to people on the phone, but I, I picked that up immediately and hired that to a virtual assistant. And I pay her $6 an hour from the Philippines, which is actually above average salary out there. And so she's thrilled. She's getting this great salary in the Philippines, pumping out phone calls for me, doing all the work by entering and entering them in the CRM. And then I benefit from it by having all these leads, right? And I, I'm paying a very, very small hourly wage in, you know, from a US standpoint. And so I found her on Upwork. You can use Fiverr, Upwork. There's, some, there's actually some companies, I think it's like Rocket Sphere or something like that, where you can go and actually they'll, you can pay them a set fee. And they'll actually find you a VA and they'll pair a VA with you. And then you, know, you train them and you, you get them up and going. But you know, I, I went through six VAs before I landed on the one I have right now. And you know, I found it very difficult at first trying to... Working with VAs is very difficult. Uh, it takes a certain skill to train VAs and to stay on top of VAs. And it, when you're trying to grow a business, the last thing you want to do is try to set up a meeting with somebody in the Philippines whose their hours aren't the same. There's a language barrier. You know, the internet connection there is not great. So it, it's really, it's really difficult. I ended up landing with this one, and she's been great so far. And it's been six months now. You know, she's got the ball rolling, so it's going well now. But at first, trying to get the cold calling off the ground took a lot of work. A lot of legwork to get a system in place to actually see benefit from it. Are you giving her a script to specifically follow when she's calling these people? So I did that for the first couple that I tried. And then I said, you know what? I just need somebody with experience who has done this before. And I'd rather pay an extra $2 an hour for somebody who's done it before. And so I, once, I got, once I went through the first like four or five people and I landed on the one I have now, I, you know, my criteria was you have, you have to have done this before. And so she actually worked for a wholesaling company out in Ohio. And so she had been doing this for a year already. So I didn't have to give her any script. It was more me telling her, this is what I'm looking for. This is what I need to know. And then just you know, do your best to pull that information out of the conversation and enter it into this CRM. And then from there, I can take over. Is she working for you full-time? She is 40 hours a week. Yeah. So she has no bandwidth to share with me, huh? No, but she knows a ton of people. So if you want, if you want the contact, I can give it to you after. I want to talk a bit more about the direct mail piece as well. Take us through kind of how you started that from the very beginning and where you are now. I think there's a lot of people that are listening. We talk about direct mail a lot on the show, but I want to hear how you got started doing that. What resources did you look for? Did you outsource it right away? If you didn't, how did you do it yourself? How did you actually, like first steps, implement a direct mail campaign? When I started doing real estate, I was 21. I had no money. And I spent like $200 on a printer, a couple packs of paper, some pens, ink. I had a nice table and I had like set up like shop. Like I set up essentially like a printing press in my bedroom. And what I would do is I would go on list source and I'd try to basically compile these lists. You know, I'd, I'd plug and play. I'd say, Hey, I want to buy a duplex in, you know, this county with somebody who has this much equity. 
right? And I would just start messing around with a bunch of lists and they, I'd pay for them, you know, 20 bucks here, 50 bucks here. And then I would handwrite all these letters. I'd put the stamp on, write the return label, everything handwritten. Like, dude, my hand was like falling off like after like week number one, right? But I, I probably sent close to 5,000 letters over in, the, in the first six months that I actually decided I was going to start direct mail. Little did I know that there were companies that you could do this, right? But I didn't have the money at that point in time to say, hey, I can allocate three grand a month to direct mail. I, I couldn't do it, right? I, I could spend a couple hundred bucks a month, you know, while I was still in, you know, I was in undergrad at UMass Lowell trying to earn, earn a degree in physical therapy at that point. So yeah, that, that's how I started. And then transitioned a little bit later to now, I went through several different systems to try to get it to where I want now. But now I'm sending close to 10,000 letters a month. I've hired a team or basically a company who I send a list to and they do everything else from there. They, you know, I don't have to do anything else by hand. And actually, I have a VA that actually scrubs the list and pulls the list for me. So it completely systematized it to a point now where it's, it's running in the background. I'm basically just the one making the decision on what list to actually pull. And you know, if you want to get into you know, how much that actually costs, it can range from anywhere from like 40 cents to a buck per letter. So if you send 10,000 letters, roughly maybe six grand, seven grand a month in marketing for that. You know, a lot of people are saying, wow, that's a lot. But you have to remember that one deal can wipe that out for the entire year, right? And so that's how I change my mentality from I'm going to do everything myself and, and you know, maybe I'll get one or two or three deals a year to, okay, now I can get 30 or 40 or you know, 50 deals a year uh, just by ramping it up. When you were writing these letters by hand, what were you writing in them? And what are you writing? What are you having the companies write in them today? It's relatively the same still. It's very, very, very basic. It's, hey, my name is Ryan Corcoran. I'm a local real estate investor. I'm a young guy looking to grow my portfolio. I'm interested in your property at blank. You know, if it's a multifamily property, I'll specify multifamily. If it's, you know, something else, I'll specify that. And then I'll just say, hey, you know, if you're interested in, uh, in chatting, please give me a call back. I, I, you know, I'd be thrilled with the opportunity. Right. So something very, very basic like that, handwritten letters. And it really catches people's attention because when they pick up this letter in the mail, that's, you know, it's a white envelope. It's got handwritten on the, on the front. They think it was, you know, it was mailed directly to them for a purpose. So they open that up and they see another, yet again, handwritten letter in there. And in my opinion, they're much more likely to give you a call back on a handwritten letter than just a mass produced letter. Now there's, you know, these companies like Open Letter Marketing and Lawrence, Ballpoint Marketing, there's, there's, there's a, probably 15 or 20 of them. They have these things called auto pen. And so it looks like it's handwritten. It's with a legit pen. Nobody can really tell the difference. And so that's a good strategy to, can, you know, to sort of mass produce this handwritten, you know, handwritten lookalike letter. So people think it's really personalized. You still go with that mass written, handwritten kind of style? I do for certain lists and then for other lists. Okay, so if I'm going to target, let's say, like a six unit property, but on my list, I, you know, I weeded out all the LLCs and corporations, right? So I've got it down to just individual owners. I will send a handwritten letter to them. And the reason for that is because likely what I'm trying to target here is mom and pop owners or maybe a, you know, an older couple who's on the property for a while or somebody who just inherited the property, right? So people like that where it's, okay, this guy's really sending me a personal letter, you know, I'm going to call back. But if I'm, gonna, if I'm trying to buy a 40-unit property, the likelihood it's a mom and pop owner, at least up here in the Northeast, is very slim because if, you know, if you're trying to buy a 40-unit property up here, it's likely a corporation owns it or you know, a larger business. And so for that, it's going to be a professional letter with a logo on it you know, a little blurb about who we are. And then it just looks much more professional. With the mom and pops, you're trying to be more personable. You're trying to be kind of get 
touch on their their personal side of things and, and kind of get that psychological piece going. And you're going towards a more LLC, you want to be more professional. And when you mom and pops care about the kind of emotional piece, whereas the more professional managers, they want to know you're going to close. That's what they care. They care if you're going to be able to pay and if you're going to be able to close. And so I think that that makes a lot of sense as to why you would do it that way. Now, you said, say you send out 10,000 letters. How many leads would you get from that? How many phone calls are you getting? Let's talk top of funnel. And then let's take it down a step further. So say you send out 10,000 letters. How many calls or emails do you think you get from about 10,000 letters? Of course, it's going to vary, but let's just say on average. And then from there, how many of those leads or emails or phone calls are actually qualified? How many actually meet your criteria and are actually good deals? This is where I need to implement a almost a statistic strategy where I can actually see where you know the actual percent, but I can tell you it's probably between two or three percent of the letters I send where I'll actually get a, a solid lead back. And that's not a phone call back that says, you know, hey, F you, right? It's a solid call where it's, hey, yeah, I've got this property, I've thought about selling it before, you know, let's let's chat. Two to three percent out of ten thousand is a good amount. It doesn't necessarily mean that if you don't buy that property today that you won't down the road. And the way I look at it is if that's a warm lead today and I set a follow-up for three months and four months, and then every three to four months from there, I send another follow-up, in a couple of years, I may buy that property that I had sent the letter to three years ago. Right? And that's actually, that actually happened to me. I'll give you a quick example. I, I sent letters to Gardner, Massachusetts. And this individual is he's in his 70s. He got my letter and stuck it on his desk and didn't acknowledge it for a year. And then a year and a half later, I got a call from him and he was like, Hey, is this Ryan? I'm like, yeah. He's like, hey, my name's Barry. I got a letter from you a year and a half ago. I, I have 32 units in Gardner. I'm looking to sell them. I went there that day and I bought 27 units from him from a, a letter that I had sent him over a year ago. You know, and that as as I continue to grow here and year over year goes by, I see more and more of that where people have just you know collected letters that I have sent and they'll give me a call back when the time's ready. And so it's really hard to say, you know, how many leads you're going to convert by sending 10,000 letters. I, I don't know. It could be zero. It could be 15. That's something I'm trying to master, trying to get, you know, how much percentage of these letters I'm actually converting into literal deals, like where I'm closing them. I mean, so far this year, I've closed probably 15. And so if you get to the math off the top of my head, let's say I've sent 70, 10,000 a month, it's been seven months, 70,000 letters, and I've closed, I've closed 15 deals, whatever that is, that, that'll give you a good number based on percentage of direct mail, at least closed leads. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? a tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. 
Let Maka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Maka is 100% free. Ask Maka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right. Back to the show. What platforms are you using? You mentioned a couple. You mentioned that there's probably a dozen or 15 or so, but what have been your favorite platforms to send your direct mail? I use Open Letter Marketing because they are super user-friendly. And what I mean by that is you can literally negotiate with them so that they have a price on there. And if, you're, if you say, hey, I'm going to send 10,000 letters out, you know, is there a discount I can provide? And then not only that, but they won't send anything unless you go through multiple hoops to approve it. So they send you exactly what it looks like. They'll send, you can make adjustments at any point in time. They seem like they're pretty reasonable compared to other companies. And so they're out of Lawrence, Massachusetts. And, and I really like the owner of the company as well. He, he's done, he basically did what I did when he started investing in real estate. He just happened to open a company doing it, which I think is great. They're awesome. I use PropStream now for the most... PropStream and CoStar for my list. CoStar is really targeted for more of the, you know, the commercial size multifamily and it's very, very accurate, but it is very expensive. PropStream is like 100 bucks a month and it's good for smaller multis, for flips, for stuff like that. Those are the two companies I use for that. We talked about the cold calling. I hired a BA for that. And then the other thing I've been starting is direct to email, uh, direct to seller with email. I actually got this from a, a partner of mine who he bought a bunch of deals when he first started. And you know he recommended I try it, and I tried it this year, and I actually bought a ten unit property up in Laconia, New Hampshire, using direct email. Um, so I'm going to try to implement that a little bit more as well. When you say that CoStar and PropStream, so CoStar is more commercial, PropStream's a little bit smaller. What are those ranges? Is PropStream good for like five to twenty five units, and then like twenty five and above is CoStar? Like, what does that break down? CoStar is really good for your five and up. Or even bigger, like 100 plus unit properties, right? I, I've seen the accuracy of it much, much better than PropStream for, for bigger properties. However, PropStream, like I've bought several six unit properties from PropStream lists. And I think the reason why not many people are using PropStream for multifamily property, or a lot of people using PropStream are wholesalers or trying to flip single family houses or full foreclosures, condos, stuff like that. For me, coming in, sending these letters to multifamily properties using, using a software that isn't really meant for multifamily, it was a little bit like, oh, is this going to work? But it, it actually dug up a good amount of leads on, you know, like I said, about two six-unit properties two months ago from PropStream, a PropStream list, which cool, impressive, whatever you want to call it, it worked. And I continue to market with PropStream for six units or larger. 
whether you use PropStream, CoStar, or any other platform, there are a ton of different lists that you can get usually within there based on equity, age of property, situation. You know, There's tons of different criteria. What have you found to be the most successful or at least like your favorite characteristics or list types when you're narrowing it down with these platforms? Like I was saying before, I try to plug and play and see what works all the time. Like I'm always switching things. But a really accurate list that I have found is, first of all, specify the number of units you want. Okay, so if you want to find five plus unit properties, make sure you hit units five, go to multifamily, hit five plus. But then the other thing that not many people do, and this I found has been super important to weed out the ones that actually aren't five units, because you know they're pulling this data from county websites and wherever else they're getting the data from. Right, they're not always accurate. And so let's stick with the five, right? So you're trying to find five five units or bigger. You're going to go to the bathrooms and you're going to press five bathrooms as well. So now what this is going to do is going to weed out all of the properties that, number one, units that don't have a bathroom in it. And for me, if I'm looking for a five plus unit multifamily residential building and it has four bathrooms, I'm likely not getting a five unit building, right? But so if I set the bathroom there, now I've got, okay. I'm classifying it as a five plus unit. I've set multifamily five and greater, and now I have five bathrooms. So now I'm weeding out all the ones that cannot possibly be less than five bathrooms. Right. And so that's just a way to ensure your accuracy gets higher. The other things I've done is go to equity. You can mess around with equity play. You can do high equity lists. And what this will do is if you just think about it, people who have high equity likely have or are more likely to sell a property because they have space to sell versus somebody who just bought maybe a year or two ago who doesn't have that much equity. And that, that leads me to another point. You can set you know, the last sale date. So I'd like to do at least 5 years of ownership, sometimes 10, sometimes 15. And again, plugging and playing and see what, seeing which lists are, are the most accurate. But those are, those are the big ones. And then lastly, just I always do non-owner occupied for these. Again, it's, it's really difficult to buy a house from somebody who's actually living in the house today. So do they just assume the equity based on how long the property has been owned by the owner? Assuming that somebody who's owned it for two years has less equity than somebody who's owned it for, say, 10 years? I think that's how they determine the data. But they also have essentially what mortgage you took out when you bought the property. And so they can see, you know, essentially, okay, they pull an 80% LTV loan back in 2015. And so then they can infer, okay, well, seven years. So the loan has likely been paid down X amount. And so that's how you can get your equity split. It's hard though, because the values that are listed on PropStream, not that accurate. Like I've seen sometimes where like I'm looking to comp a six unit on PropStream and the closest comp is like $5 million. And I'm like, wait, how does that make sense? Because that person who bought that other six unit bought a portfolio of properties for $5 million. And that's what, that is what's recorded in PropStream. And so you have to be careful of stuff like that. So I, I don't heavily rely on for comparable properties on PropStream. I prefer to ask agents or use other other methods for that. Do you look for cash buyers for potential creative financing opportunities? I have not done that before. No. Creative financing has been huge for me, but I've never looked on PropStream for cash buyers specifically to do that. I want to talk a bit about your focus because and how you think about focus. Because in addition to having wholesaled, flipped, wholetailed over 10 properties this year so far, you've also bought over 50 units. So there's kind of, you could argue there's overlap, but there's also three to four different strategies that you're implementing there. A lot of successful people have recommended to me that people need to focus. How do you think about focus in your business and as you go through your day-to-day operations? So I actually agree 100%. I think focusing on one thing, at least when you're starting, is super important. Well, we haven't really talked about this 
podcast is when I started, I didn't wholesale. I didn't flip. I didn't do any of that. I bought 157 rental units. I bought some by myself, some with partners, and I focused solely on long-term buy and holds. However, I had been using the same strategy of direct mail and, and finding off-market leads to do all of that. And so as I accumulated these, you know, we're about to have over 200 units in the next couple of weeks. All of that has been the same strategy. But I got to the point where I was like, okay, I keep buying all these properties. I'm using creative financing. I'm using a little bit of my own money. But like you eventually run out of money. Like you, can't keep, you just keep buying and buying and buying and you don't sell anything. You run out of capital to do things unless you continue to leverage other people. And so I was like, you know what? I need some sort of you know, basically a cash producing business so I can keep infusing this into the business to keep ramping up the long-term holds. And so that's where the idea of, all right, let's start wholesaling. Let's flip properties. You know, we'll probably flip between 30 and 40 properties by the end of this year. And the sole purpose of that is to take that capital and dump it back into long-term holds. So my main play is long-term holds. But if you think about it, I'm really only focusing on just finding off-market leads. So that's the business model that I've developed is finding off-market leads. And I've mastered that. Being able to wholesale or, or flip a property, is, it's not all that difficult when you've got the lead in your hand. And if you're not going to buy it yourself, you, I'm just trying to make use of these properties. Basically, what I'm doing is trying to make use of properties that I wouldn't buy for myself. And by doing that, you know, creating extra cash and infusing cash into the back end of the business so I can continue to buy more. If you get a lead in, how are you deciding between keeping a property as a long-term rental or flipping it or wholesaling it? How do you decide between which strategy to implement? I think that you know, at first it was... At when I first started, it was burr, burr, burr. Like I wanted to do as many, buy a property, fix it up, rent it out, refinance it, pull back capital, pay off debt guys or pay off myself or partner, whoever came into the deal with me and keep recycling capital. right? And so that works awesome as the market is going up. However, when the market plateaus or you know it starts, who knows where it's going to go, right? Go down right now, cap rates might go up and therefore values might start to drop. right? So to me, I had to pivot a little bit. And so a deal that I would typically buy for myself, maybe I won't buy it right now. And so my criteria, I don't really have a specified, it's got to be this number per unit, blah, 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 right? However, if the deal looks good enough where I can pull most of my capital back out, I will do that deal myself. If it's like, hey, you know, I'm going to leave $100,000 of my own capital into the deal after it's fixed up, rented and refinanced, well, maybe that would be more beneficial for me, you know, from a cost of capital standpoint to wholesale it or assign it for 50 grand or flip it and, and make 100 grand. From you know the buy box, I guess you could say, for me personally, it's got to be a very compelling deal right now. So that leads me to kind of a inherent question is you're kind of cherry picking the best deals for yourself. How are you able to wholesale something to somebody? You're like, hey, I have this subpar kind of BC quality deal that I don't want to buy myself. You want it? And I understand there's some people that have different criteria different people that are just kind of willing to buy those types of deals. But walk us through that thought process and how you're able to kind of sell these or wholesale these kind of second tier properties. And so the best way I can put this is that I want infinite return on my capital, right? This is a business that I'm trying to scale up. And so for me, if I leave money into a deal and I'm making a 10% return or a 15% return, that's not what, that's not what I'm looking for. But a lot of people, if they can get a 10 to 15% return on an investment, they're going to jump on that, right? Like what, what asset class can you say, you know, continually goes up in value, rents keep going up, I'm going to continue to get a 10 to 15% return on my money in this multifamily asset that's a relatively stable asset, right? 
And so I've basically built up a list of people. It's not even just a list. Like you post things on the MLS and people are buying properties that you think are way overpriced, right? They're, they're probably still getting a decent return. You know, from a wholesaling and a flipping perspective, if I'm going to wholesale or flip a six unit property, you know, and this, this person is going to get a 15% return, that's a really good deal for them. And so I'm not necessarily looking at it like, hey, it's a bad deal. It's just, you know what, this is not going to promote what I am looking to do in my business, but it's a really good deal for somebody else. Now, if the property is just so overpriced that it doesn't make sense for me and it wouldn't make sense for somebody else, that's not something I would try to push along with somebody. Again, I'm not really a wholesaler at heart here. I'm a long-term buy and hold investor, but I'm just trying to convert leads that are still good deals, but they're not amazing deals to individuals who can do something with them. You mentioned your buy box. Let's kind of go through that. I know you said you don't have a necessarily a specific number of units, but let's talk through some of the other criteria. Do you set minimum? I know you set the location, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, which I want to know why you don't invest in Connecticut because that's kind of right in the same area. But also, what about age? Is it only a certain age, type of property, condition, et cetera? Like, take us through some of the other criteria in your buy box. First of all, location. Population is really important when I'm looking to buy properties. If I see stable population or increasing population year over year, that's a green light. If it's decreasing population, that's a no-no, right? Like I, I won't even entertain it typically. Next is, you know, you look at, okay, let's say I want to buy eight units and larger. In the Northeast, there's a lot of eight unit properties, right? Six units, eight units, 10 units. There's a lot of these like you know, they're almost like pieced together properties because there's a lot of mills up here in the Northeast. And so when they were building these, they were, you know, basically pumping a bunch of individuals into these buildings that were close by to mills. If you look at the breakdown and the composition of the actual properties up here, there are a lot of those mid-tier multifamily properties. But if you look down in like Florida, the odds that you're going to find an eight-family property is very slim, right? But if you want a hundred unit property, there's a good amount of them down in Florida. How many hundred unit properties are here in the Northeast? Like a handful, like not many at all, right? I've found a lot of success and some of my partners up here found a lot of success doing buying those 6 to 20 unit properties where a lot of the larger investors don't look and a lot of the smaller investors can't touch yet. Typically, they're built in the 1900s, so they're older properties, but you're usually able to get them for a pretty steep discount because they all need work. That has been really my buy box. You know, is the population good? Is it built in the, you know... First of all, is it in good shape, but is it an older building and I can, I can infuse capital and make this thing worth a lot more? Are the rents super low? Is the property mismanaged? Those are all things I'm looking for personal buys. You say that the three most important things to ensure success are finding deals, creative finance, and getting in the room with people doing big things. We just talked a bit about how you find your deals, how you source your deals. We walked through that whole process. Now I want to learn a bit about your creative financing, how you're financing some of your deals. And for those listening, I just did a two-part series with Pace Morby on episodes 131 and 132, all about creative financing that people really loved. So if you haven't heard those yet, go check those out. But Ryan, once you find a deal, you sent out a letter, you got a lead in, qualified it, seems like a good deal, you want to buy it. Talk to us a bit about the creative financing strategies that you use. And if you can't use a creative financing strategy, what are some of the other methods that you've used to fund these deals? Are you using partners? Are you using your own capital? Kind of walk us through how you're closing these deals. So first of all, I listened to those two podcasts uh, before this with, with Pace. They were really good. Great job. I don't know him personally, but what he's been able to do in the sub two world is unbelievable. But he also talks a lot about seller financing and other creative ways. 
when you're first starting off in real estate, besides finding a really good deal, right? To, to me, finding the deal is the most important thing because you literally can't do anything without a deal. Like there is no real estate without a deal. But a very close second to that is if you have a deal, how are you going to be able to fund this thing? First of all, you can use your own capital, which not many people do. I don't really know any investors who really buy things in cash, right? Like he was talking about, I don't really know anybody who buys things in cash because that's not the best use of their money, right? And so the first thing we do is when you find a deal is you try to go find a bank, you know, conventional, let's, let's just use a six unit property, for example, right? I'm going to go get, a, I'm going to either go to a broker or I'm going to go to a, a local bank. I'm going to say, I have this property under agreement. Will you give me 25% or, you know, will you give me 75 to 80% of the loan to value? Right. And so that's step number one, in my opinion, because it's the cheapest debt you can get. Typically, if they say yes, they're now an 80% partner, essentially, right? They're putting out 80% of the deal. It's on my responsibility to put up the 20%. Now that 20% can come from anywhere. It can come from hard money. It can come from private money. It can come from your own money. It can come from the seller. I have personally used almost every possible creative financing strategy you can possibly think of. Well, just my favorite thing to do is, is simply that go to a conventional lender get a 75 to 80% loan to value. And if the deal is good enough, which every single deal I buy has to be good enough, I will then raise the down payment from somebody who wants to earn an 8 to, eight to 10% you know, interest-only payment, essentially, with a balloon at the end. And why I do this is because, let's say you know, you're buying a... Let's call it a million bucks and somebody's coming in there. You know, they're going to bring 200000 to the table as private money. Okay, They're going to receive interest-only payments as I'm doing rehab on this property, increasing the rents. And then when I refinance that property, that cash out is going to pay off that private lender. And now I own the property, but you know, solely with the bank, right? Essentially, right? So they're they're now going to be an eighty percent loan to value, and I'm going to own it by myself. The the debt partner is paid off, and so that's a that's a creative way to essentially do a burr. We talked about earlier the direct email I was going to start ramping up, right? So this ten unit that I purchased earlier this year is in Laconia, New Hampshire. The guy responded to me and he was like, you know what? Make me an offer. Be creative. I don't really care. I'm an older guy. I, you know, whatever you want to do. Right. So I said, okay, well, how about you hold the note and we'll, so we started messing around with some terms. Right. So he ended up saying, he ended up agreeing to doing a 100% seller financing. I literally brought zero dollars to the table to buy a 10 unit property. And the interest rate we agreed on at the time was 5% because everything was like four something and he felt like he wanted to make a little bit make a little bit of money on me. And I was like, you know what, that's totally fine because they're probably gonna go up at some point. And so now they're almost 6% and I'm locked for 30 years at a 5% interest payment on a 10 unit property that I brought zero dollars down to. You're probably saying, why would somebody do that? If he had sold that property to me, property to me for the 600 grand that I bought it for, he would have been nailed with, property, uh, with capital gains tax and probably would have paid you know, close to $150,000 out of that profit. Now he's not paying really any capital gains tax because he seller financed the entire thing to me. That's a strategy where I wish more people would do because sellers are often very inclined to do seller financing for that specific reason. Not having to pay capital gains is huge, especially as you grow in real estate, you realize that the single largest expense that we have as business owners is taxes, right? It's not your lattes or the gas you put in your car. It has nothing to do with that. It's taxes. If you can minimize your tax liability every year and find ways to make more money without paying tax on it, it's very advantageous for sellers like that. And so for him, he's in his 70s. He's owned the property for a while. He would rather sit back and go down to Florida and collect a $2,300 check for me every month instead of managing everything. So yeah, there's two ways. And then the last one I'll talk about real quick is I've utilized hard money quite a bit. 
And hard money is expensive. Don't get me wrong. You usually pay a point, maybe a point and a half on it. It's, you know, eight, 10% um, interest payments on it. But for flipping properties, hard money has been huge because they, they'll usually allow you to bring maybe 10% to the, to the table. So it requires not that much cash out of pocket to get in. And then you can combine all of these strategies together. And that's where you can get really creative, right? You can combine seller credit, seller financing with hard money and private money and go get a conventional loan, right? All at the same time. And, you know, it's just all, it's all about just like playing with deals and being creative and, you know, funding, funding a deal. I think maybe you should start with funding in mind before you actually lock up a deal. You know, how are you going to fund this deal before you actually lock it up? Because funding itself can create a deal alone. And you can actually outprice people and you can actually, you know, basically beat out competitors with your specific available funding compared to theirs. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host. That's airbnb.com host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, High interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. For that seller that you bought the property in Laconia, New Hampshire, did he understand the tax benefits before you brought that deal to him? He was a business owner. He had owned some real estate. He owned a landscaping company. And so he definitely knew 
what I was trying to get at by telling him that he wasn't going to pay capital gains tax. But I don't think he completely understood it that well. I mean, I think he knew that, okay, if I don't take any money, I'm not going to pay taxes. But when I actually broke it down to him and showed him the total profit that he was going to make like $300,000 more than the actual sale price over the course of 30 years. And so once he saw that, he was like, well, holy crap, like, why would I say no to that? And so that's why I'm saying I wish a lot of people would educate possible sellers on this because number one, it preserves your capital and it creates these deals where it's a win, more of a win-win for everybody. Yeah. I mean, the tax benefits are amazing. That's a, a huge selling point. But what I think is interesting is if anybody listening has ever done a calculation on their mortgage and seen how much interest they're paying, it's a lot of money, especially over a 30-year period. Now you take that instead of it going to a bank, it's going to the person that's seller financing it to you. So to your point, if you buy a property for say 600000 just going to use some round numbers here for easy math, but let's say they're going to get another interest of 250, 300,000, right? Now they essentially sold that property for what? 850, 900,000 instead of really that 600,000. And then on top of it, of course, there's the tax benefits, there's the passive income, et cetera. But I think that that interest piece is, is not talked about enough. I agree. I think it's, it's a super powerful strategy, but you have to understand, you really have to understand taxes and, and how it works to be able to educate a seller on this. I mean, you know, if you just told a seller that, hey, you don't have to pay any taxes on this, they're probably going to be like, you're full of crap, right? You, have, you actually have to, you know, understand the rules, understand what's going on in the background and the actual tax code on how this works. Because like, he was like, well, why don't you give me $100,000 down? Right. And I was like, okay, well, you know, that was, you know, that, that's like reasonable. But then when we started talking, I'm like, you're going to have to pay taxes on that $100,000 that I put down because you're accepting that and that's going to get taxes capital gain. And he didn't understand that. He thought, okay, well, if I'm holding the note on the whole thing and you give me a down payment, I don't have to pay taxes on the down payment. But that's actually not true. He does have to pay taxes on that initial down payment. And so that's how I was able to get into this deal for $0 down. Do you happen to have a CPA or, or a tax professional handy? That would be willing to talk to these people. I've considered doing that is when I talk to people about seller financing, you know, I have a, a decent level of knowledge about the tax benefits of it, but I'm not a tax professional. So I've considered kind of setting up something with my CPA or a tax professional to say, hey, I have a seller who has some questions kind of about the tax implications of this seller financing deal. Can I just send them to you to answer some questions? Have you done anything like that? I don't want to drop his name on here. So everyone starts bombing him. But um, no, I, I have not thought about doing that before. But I think that's great. I think most CPAs should understand, you know, at a base level, what the implications are of selling a property from a capital gain standpoint. And they would certainly be able to advise on how to have that conversation with somebody, or at least what to, what to tell somebody. And so yeah, I think, that's, I think that's a great idea. But I'm not going to drop mine's name right now. For the private money that you're doing interest only with the balloon at the end, what is the period that you're locking up that money for? Are you doing a year with the balloon at the end, two years, three years, five years? What does that look like? It's going to depend on the actual property. So if it's a flip, maybe it's a six-month note, right? And, but if it's a, a full-blown 25-unit, 30-unit rehab project, maybe it's 24 months. And so I've done everything from one month all the way to 36 months. And so it totally... And it also depends on the lender, right? A lot of people that do this they're looking for a stable return and they're investing in you as an operator, not necessarily the deal, right? So I don't think I've had one private money investor who has said, okay, show me the numbers on the actual deal. They're all, you know, it's more, hey, Ryan, like I know you're doing really well at this. You're, you know, you're crushing it. I see you making other people money. You're making, you know, you're doing well. 
and they're invested in me as me, Ryan Corbett, right? They're, they don't care what happens to the deal. They just want to make sure that they're going to get paid every month and they trust me to get, you know, to make that money. From that perspective, you know, it really comes down to, well, how long do you want your money locked up for? And, you know, are you look, you're looking for a 10% return. Do you want that over the course of three years or do you just want it for six months, six months and to get the lump sum back, right? As you build these, this network of private money, which I think everybody should start today, it can be friends, family, every, everybody, right? You should get to know people who have money because, you know, they're going to be huge assets in your, in the ability for, of you to grow in your business. But you really start to pick and play deals. And what I mean by that is, you know, if I have a flip and I know somebody who just has short term, wants short term interest only payments to get that lump sum back within a year, you know, I might try to pair those two together. Right. But if I, you know, if I know somebody who's got a couple hundred thousand sitting in, sitting around and they're looking to just earn a, basically a work free 10% on their money, then maybe, you know, a long term hold is a good spot for them. Do you typically have a prepayment penalty with your private money or do you just kind of eat that? If you agree to 12 month and you finish sooner, you just kind of eat that cost for the remaining period that you finished? I've never had a prepayment penalty, penalty with any private money lenders. And I've never, that conversation actually has never come up. And actually, I always just say, you know, like, you'll likely get this payment back before that balloon payments do. And never once have I had to say, nobody has, none of the people who have lent me money from a private standpoint have ever said, well, is there going to be a 1% fee or something? No, zero, never ever. And because almost everybody I know personally, I know these people personally. And so again, it comes down to just, yeah, I'll just make a 10% return and no points either. Like I haven't paid any points on private money either. And so that's why I think you know, private money is the cheapest way to buy real estate besides using your own capital. So if you don't have it, private money, you can typically get into it with, again, no prepayments, no points needed. You agree mutually with the other person on you know, an interest rate, terms. It's all flexible. There's no real like, regulation on it. That's why you know, I, I, you know, I really recommend that people start building up their private money pipelines. Who are you using for your lenders up here in the New England area? You mentioned that you work with some banks. I'm curious who those are. I've got a good relationship with a handful of banks. I've used quite a bit, actually, I've used Franklin Savings Bank. And the reason I was using them for a while was because they were allowing me to do 80% loan to value at like a 4% interest rate over, you know, amortized over 25 years with all the rehab covered with an interest only for the first year. That was super enticing for me because not only did I not really have to raise that much other money to get these deals done, like private money or hard money, because they were funding all the rehab for me. And then essentially they would do, you know, essentially what it is is like this, they have this as complete appraisal, right? And so as long as you get the property up to where you said you were going to get it, they basically refi that property at that appraised price, which is super beneficial to know that before, but you know, before you start getting into the project. So they're one, a good hard money lender up here is called Renovo. I don't know how good they actually are as a company. I don't really know. But the guy that I use, his name is Eric DiMiranda. And if you, if you guys are you know interested in chatting with him, I'm sure he'd love if I gave his information out. He's, the guy's closed in like 200 deals a month. He's really awesome from a hard money standpoint. Other banks I've used, I've used Main Street Bank before, Bay State Bank, I've used Bay Coast Bank. So there's, there's like three or four solid you know credit unions. And then if you're looking for a broker... The absolute best loan broker, in my opinion, is the Brady Capital Advisors. His name's Pat Brady. He is unbelievable. Now, you do pay brokers a fee, but they do all the work for you, right? They vet out the banks. They essentially find you the loan product, and you don't have to do any work anymore. So, uh, you know, I, I really rec- I, actually what I should what I should have started this conversation with is something you should do if you're you know looking for funding 
is to really get and buddy up with a, a broker. Because if you can get a really good broker on your team, you'll be able to find these loans without actually putting in all the work to find the loans, if that makes sense, because they're doing it all for you. Yeah. One of my lenders down in Texas, where I buy a lot of my properties, does the exact same type of as-is or after-repair a refinance that, that you mentioned that Franklin Savings does. As we get towards the end of the show, I want to talk about the third factor that you mentioned that you say is crucial for success, which is the one that we haven't talked about yet. And that is getting in the room with people doing big things. There's a lot of different things we can talk about, or I want to ask about this, but let's start off with why. Why do you want to be in the room with people doing big things? This is probably the thing I am most passionate about. And it does, this is not just a real estate industry specific thing, right? This is any business. It could be sports. It doesn't matter what, literally anything, right? You want to be a good writer, get in the room with people who are really good writers. If you want to be a really good athlete, you need to get in the room with guys who are doing things way bigger than you. But if we want to tailor this to, we're going to tailor this to real estate, right? So I just want to tell a quick story. I, I moved down here to Rhode Island about a year and a half ago. And when I moved here, I didn't know anybody. I, you know, I didn't have any... I had a business going. I had bought property in New Hampshire, Massachusetts so far, but I knew nobody down here. And so what I did was I said, okay, who helped me buy the property? So I had an attorney, I had an agent. I went to both of those guys and I said, who are the biggest investors, agents, and attorneys in this area? And they gave me some people. And so I went to go talk to those people and I said, okay, who are the best you know, at multifamily property, right? And so I was uh, compiling a list of individuals and they would give me their emails and their numbers and I'd start reaching out to people. And one guy sent me to this this attorney who had, he closes like 450 deals a month, something crazy when I, when I saw the stats, right? And so I went and talked to him and I said, all right, Mike, who is the best agent in the area? And he sent me to this guy named Kyle. Now, Kyle, his name's Kyle Sebo. He closed 530 deals last year. He, I think it was like 200 something million. He was the largest real estate uh, agent in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. I'm like, well, there's no way he's going to answer my phone call, right? And so I'm like, what can I do to get in the room with this guy? I brought him deals. Immediately, I started shuffling him deals, and we ended up doing a deal together. And then after we did that deal, he he invited me to a mastermind, and I sat down in this mastermind. I'm you know I'm 27. All these guys are 30, 35. One of them's 55. Right? These guys are all worth like 50 million bucks, and I'm sitting here with you know I'm I'm not saying I'm not worth anything, but at at the point in time when I met them, I'm like, wow, these guys are way ahead of me. And so the first thing we did was we went around the room and we said, what are your goals? And so I said, I want to own 250 units by the end of the year. And everyone's like, yeah, that's, that's a pretty good goal. The guy next to me goes, I want to make $10 million a month. And the guy after that goes, all right, well, I've made 1.2 so far. I need to make 2.5 this month to hit my goal. And I'm like, what? And like, where am I? Like, I felt like an ant. Since then, though, all five of those guys, I've partnered with all five of those guys on different properties and different projects. And my, I've 8x my income in seven months since January. Just by being in the room with those people, you automatically elevate up. You may not get to their level immediately, but you elevate up so much higher than you ever thought you could possibly imagine. Uh, and so it's, it's hard for me to really explain why it's super important, but really giving that example, it's mind-blowing. Because then you turn around and you say, well, like, look how far I've come just by getting in a room with people who are doing things that I couldn't even fathom. I really can't stress this enough. I, ju- I just, I don't know if anyone knows what it is, but GoBundance. I just joined GoBundance because you know, it's $10,000 a year, right? So I just paid ten grand. Literally, be in a room with people doing things that are way bigger than me, and I, you know, I, again, I can't stress how, how important it is to do that. You just you learn things that you didn't even know were possible. You start making money, and, and you start living a life that you really didn't even know was was possible. Essentially, yeah, I mean, that's crazy. 
there's a reason why there's a saying that you are the five people you spend the most time with, right? It's getting in the groom with those people, spending time with those people, it rubs off on you. And whether that's good or bad, whether it could be doing things that you don't want to be doing, if you spend time with those people, you're going to end up like those people. If they're doing things you want to do, you're eventually going to lift to that level as well. I think there's a lot of, a lot of truth to that, that as well. Ryan, as we wrap up the show, I want to give you a chance to tell the audience, everybody listening, where they can go to connect with you and find you. Social media and I, we, aren't, we don't get along that well. I haven't really spent a lot of time building up a, a following. But you know, over the last couple of months, I've started to ramp it up a little bit. That's really my next goal is to try to really get going on social media, YouTube channel. So I've got an Instagram. It's rjcorcoran08. TikTok is at the same thing. Instagram. I mean, I'm sorry. YouTube is just Ryan Corcoran. So you can find me on all those. But yeah, give me give me a follow if you want to. It, it's all very educational, like almost like vlog type stuff. So you know, if I go see properties, I'm just taking pictures of what I'm doing, walking around with videos of what I'm actually doing. It's really cool. I, I think um, a lot of people get a lot of educational value out of the channel. Yeah, give me a follow and uh, connect. I'll be sure to put a link to all your different resources in the show notes below for anybody that is interested in checking them out and connecting with you. Ryan, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man, this has been awesome. I, um, I hope everybody learned something out of it and continue to follow along on the show because it's super awesome. You, got, you guys are putting out a bunch of good content. You got a bunch of great guests on the podcast and you're, you're crushing it. Keep it up, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.